Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Andy Staples on 3, where the news never stops. There's no offseason in college football. None. Absolutely none. It's all right. It's all right. Because... Some very interesting things happened on Wednesday. Very interesting. You had two state attorneys general suing the NCAA on antitrust grounds. You had a sitting head coach take an NFL coordinator job. Sitting, well, we're not saying, we're not saying power and that number, because that gets us that gets us the family feud buzzer. A core four head coach. An ACC head coach, Jeff Halfley, takes the Green Bay Packers defensive coordinator job. So now there's another opening because the college football coaching carousel never stops. By the way, transfer portal open again for 30 days. Though, I will say, BC, when you're in classes for a couple for a month already at BC, I don't think you're leaving right now. You're probably going through spring practice before you decide what you're going to do. But let's talk about The biggest news. The Attorney General of Tennessee, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, filed suit on Wednesday in federal court in Knoxville against the NCAA. And this is stemming from the NCAA's investigation into Tennessee. But again, we'll see if other states join because there was a case similar to this that involved the transfer rules a month ago. And there were seven states, and I believe the U.S. Justice Department chimed in on it as well. So we will see if there is more action on this. But right now, basically what's happened is they've sued saying that the rules against talking about NIL deals with recruits violate the Sherman Antitrust Act. And I broke it all down on Wednesday right after the the case was filed. So. Let's listen to that explanation, and then I'll let you know what's happened since. The attorneys general in Tennessee and Virginia have sued the NCAA, and the question is, are there more states coming? In a lawsuit filed Wednesday morning in federal court in Knoxville, the Tennessee and Virginia AGs accuse the NCAA of violating federal antitrust law based on recent enforcement of NIL rules. And basically what's going on is the NCAA is looking into cases involving NIL where basically they are accusing schools of using NIL to induce recruits or discussing NIL payments with recruits. And it's not even the schools necessarily being accused. It's the collectives attached to the schools that are being accused of this. And we know Tennessee is being investigated. We know Florida is being investigated. There are other schools under investigation right now. We're not entirely sure who those schools are, but I imagine we're going to find out here in the next days and weeks. So basically what this lawsuit is asking is a judge to issue either a temporary restraining order or an injunction that says, hey, these rules don't apply. 
because they violate the Sherman Act. And do they? Well, the way to check on this is, is it a bunch of competitors colluding to keep a certain group of people from making as much money as they can? Well, yeah, the answer is yes. It's the schools made these rules through the NCAA to keep their costs down. So there's a really good chance that a judge is going to rule that this does violate antitrust law. And the NCAA will have to come up with some sort of, they call it pro-competitive justification. And we've seen in past NCAA antitrust cases, they don't really have any good arguments. Their, their best argument in the past was, People like it better when the athletes don't make any money, which isn't based in fact. And in, in fact, since NIL payments came into existence, college football ratings are up. In fact, ratings are up across the board. Sports are more popular now than they've ever been. But the NCAA has to come up with a way to claim that this is a pro-competitive thing. So they could say, well, these rules exist to make it more fair, to make it more equitable. In the sport of football, that's going to be hard to argue because when the rules were really in effect and as strict as they could be, college football was probably the most competitively unbalanced sport of all the major sports in America and, in fact, has become more balanced since the NIL stuff came into effect. So this specifically deals with recruits. And what makes this feel so big is that this is kind of the last piece of it because yes you can pay current athletes you can discuss nil deals with current athletes if you're the collective to say you can't discuss it with a prospective athlete is just silly because one those conversations went on under the table long before nil was allowed two those conversations go on now you cannot sign a good football player or a good basketball player right now unless that person knows what their NIL situation is going to be coming to your school, whether they're coming out of high school or whether they're coming out through the transfer portal. It's just a piece of information that they require before they make that decision. And what the attorney generals are saying is you can't keep that information away from those players because you are trying to suppress that market. So what happens if the TRO gets granted? What happens if an injunction gets granted? Well, then the collectives can just talk to recruits about how much money they're going to make, which, spoiler alert, they already are. All this would do is make it where the system that has come into place since NIL became allowed in 2021 would not be against NCAA rules. And the reason this is so such a strange situation, I don't understand why the NCAA went after schools on this all the schools are doing it now so it's not like they're going to say oh you got tennessee you got florida state you're getting florida we're fine no they've got the same things going on with their collective so if they can get tennessee if they can get florida state if they can get florida they can get you too and i don't think the schools are going to put up with that remember the schools are the members of the ncaa now a lot of the complaints about this situation is they have not been able to shape the NIL rules the way they would have liked, the way they the, the normal process would allow. Part of it was because that normal process is extremely bureaucratic. It takes a long time, and they've been trying to hit a moving target with all this NIL stuff because it's a rapidly evolving thing. But the NCAA going after some of its 
biggest schools and saying, we're going to enforce rules that weren't necessarily in effect or we weren't sure were in effect when this stuff happened. That was a bad idea because that's what brought this case into court. And that is probably going to get that rule kicked by the court. And if it is, I don't think it's ever coming back. See, just like the stuff with NIL, when the world didn't end, when players started getting paid, and in fact, the game got a lot more interesting because, oh, shockingly, unless you listen to The Economist, players started moving to schools where they wouldn't have necessarily gone before, and it made it where more schools could actually compete for the national title in football. So this is going to be a fascinating case because this is one of the most direct attacks on the NCAA just saying, hey, your rules are not sacred. We're going to let this happen, and the world is changing. It's still up to the court to decide whether that happens or not. But given recent history, it probably will. We saw it with the transfer rules last month. Seven different state attorney generals jumped in on that case, which started in West Virginia. And the transfer rules had no chance, basically. TRO was issued, then an injunction was issued, and the NCAA just sort of backed off because they understand once it's declared illegal, you've got to kind of you've got to figure out something else. And so the schools ultimately need to go back to the drawing board, figure out something else. Perhaps that's revenue sharing with athletes. Perhaps that's viewing athletes as employees and bargaining collectively with them. Because if you do that, then you can't challenge the rules on antitrust grounds. Like if they want to make transfer rules or they want to make a salary cap, compensation rules of any kind, they got to collectively bargain those. Otherwise, they're going to face the same challenges they're facing now. And what they're realizing is the schools aren't necessarily their friends. The states aren't their friends. They don't have a whole lot of friends left. That is the NCAA. They haven't made a lot of good decisions through this entire process, but going after some of their biggest schools for stuff that everybody was doing is probably going to be their biggest mistake yet. So Sandman in the chat, who's a Texas fan, says, let's all sue the NCAA. Well, everybody might at some point. That That is a distinct possibility. The NCAA did respond to... Tennessee Chancellor Donnie Plowman's comments, not to the case, though, uh, on Wednesday. And here is that response. While the NCAA generally does not comment on specific, I probably shouldn't read it in the accent. While the NCAA generally does not comment on specific infractions cases, it is important to remember that NCAA member schools and conferences not only make the rules, but routinely call for greater enforcement of those rules and holding violators accountable. In recent years, this has been especially true as it relates to establishing and enforcing a consistent set of national rules intended to manage the name and lightness environment. This legal action would exacerbate what our good word exacerbates a great word. What our members themselves have frequently described as a wild west atmosphere, further tilting competitive imbalance among schools in neighboring states and diminishing protections for student athletes from potential exploitation. The NCAA remains firmly committed to protecting and expanding student athletes NIL rights and opportunities. However, our membership has steadfastly supported the prohibition on impermissible recruiting contacts, booster involvement in recruiting prospects, and the use of NIL offers as recruiting inducements. That's what they've said. Here's the problem. 
You're going by what these ADs and coaches say and not what they do. They say it's the Wild West. They say that this is awful. This is the worst thing ever. What do they do? They're making NIL deals with everybody as recruits. Everywhere. That's what they're doing. Stop worrying about what they're saying. We know what they're saying. We know they want to protect the status quo, protect their money. We get it. Also, I will push back on the NCAA saying that it is trying to protect athletes' NIL opportunities. You don't protect somebody by suppressing their income. The NCAA tried that uh, in the Obama case. I remember sitting there in the courtroom in Oakland when the NCAA president at the time, Mark Emmert, was on the stand. And he's talking about protecting the athletes from exploitation. And, and the plaintiff's attorneys call up a picture of the Kansas State football team running across the Buffalo Wild Wings logo. And he's like, how are you protecting them from exploitation here? It sort of looks like you're exploiting them. Because your school's getting the money, but they're not. It's going to be a bloodbath if this keeps going. And again, I keep trying to explain to people, it's not just Tennessee. It could have been anybody. And it's multiple somebodies. There are more of these. And they picked the wrong set of schools to do this to. Because these are the schools that the NCAA needs to support them. And here's the other part of the NCAA's response that, well, doesn't hold up. There is no response to the antitrust suit. They're not claiming it's legal because they know it's not. They know what happened in the Austin case when they lost nine to nothing. When Justice Gorsuch had a pretty calm opinion, but if you read between the lines, it said all the same things that Brett Kavanaugh's much fierier concurring opinion said. Basically, any of these compensation rules come to the federal court system, they're going to get kicked. And the NCAA knows this. So they push Tennessee into a corner, and Tennessee comes out swinging. And guess what? Once a judge rules on this, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe the judge will say, no, no, by all means, keep them from making more money. All you competitors make rules unilaterally and impose them on people who have no say to make sure they get less money. Maybe a judge will say that's within the law. I suspect they won't. And once that happens, it doesn't matter what you think of the rules or what anybody said about the rules. They're gone. So strap in for this one. Strap in because it is going to be wild. Kyle Tucker in the chat. I know damn well there's some recruits walking around with brand new Nike gear because of Uncle Phil. Hey, Kyle, do you know how many schools wear Nike? You're 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 a little little behind on this. It's going to be very interesting to see if any other states get involved, if other schools are being investigated for this stuff now. Because again. It's not because it's Tennessee, and it's not because of what's going on. Like, the NCAA leaked details to the New York Times on Tuesday that Nico Yamamelava, when he was recruit, 
got flown by private jet to Knoxville. Well, yes. He signed a representation agreement with Spire Sports, which then flew its client to Knoxville on a private jet. You're going to have to convince somebody. Well, actually, you're not. You're not even going to be able to try to convince somebody that that was a recruiting inducement. And maybe it was. But if a judge kicks the, the rule, it doesn't matter. And I think that's the part that the NCAA doesn't quite get, that nobody in charge seems to get, at least the ones that are, that are doing the decision-making. You're only maybe, I mean, it depends on how quickly this goes, but you might be less than a week away from your rules not applying at all. Like, if they kick a rule that says you can't use NIL as a recruiting inducement and you can't discuss NIL with recruits so that you can discuss NIL with recruits and you can use it as a recruiting inducement, it's never coming back. That rule's not coming back. And let's be honest. Everybody knows that. Everybody's been preparing for that eventuality. The schools are already doing that. They're already acting as if that's happened. And again, stop worrying about what they say. Never listen to a complaining AD. Watch what they do. Josh in the chat. Is this a tipping point in college athletics? Also, what percentage do you see the four main conferences forming their own governing body. Good question, Josh. It, it does feel like a tipping point because this is the most direct attack on a, a rule that limits broad payment to players. And the fact that it's recruits is the big distinction here because this is essentially the hiring process. We're not calling them employees. The government may eventually call them employees. But before... You couldn't, you couldn't do this at all. You couldn't pay them at all. And then they said you can pay them, but once they're on campus. Well, that's stupid. Nobody in their right mind is going to make a decision about where to go based on what they might get when they get there. They want to know what they're going to get when they get there. So the hiring process is very important. So yeah, when this comes along, this would open the floodgates. This would just make everything that's been going on within the rules because the rules wouldn't exist anymore. As far as a percentage about the core four, see, I said it right, leaving the NCAA. They don't have to leave the NCAA. Remember, they are still the most important members of the NCAA. They could just clean house in there and change all the rules. It's still a possibility. Like, that's not outside the realm at all. Maybe football breaks away. I think the smarter move might be breaking football off because that would eliminate a lot of the problems and, and make all the other ones kind of more like sports. Now, you might need to break basketball off too because football and, and men's and women's basketball do seem to operate in a little bit different sphere than everything else. But I just think they can do it within the, the confines of the NCAA. They just have to take out all the people who have been faithful to the old way of doing things and say, do you have imagination or do you lack imagination? And if you lack imagination, you're gone. 
because we're going to have to imagine a new world here. That's the only way to do this. You have to imagine a new world. You can't sit there and say everything that was going on before is going to be that way forever because you're not. It's not going to happen. That is not how the world works. And really, when the when the Supreme Court ruled 9 nothing against the NCAA in the Austin case, that was the that was the point where they should have said, okay, we have to start forging a new world here. They didn't do that. Kyle asked, why are they going after Tennessee and not Texas A&M, Texas, Ohio State? They literally just left Tennessee a few months ago for infractions. Well, look, the old in, the old Tennessee infractions were old NCAA rules, old stuff, you know, basically recruiting violations, stuff during COVID. Why are they not going after other schools for what they are going after Tennessee for now? They are. Florida's one of them. We know that. Florida State already wrapped up its case. There will be more. And my guess is some of them are going to respond as violently as Tennessee did. And that will not go well. Paul in the chat. Once the state's passed NILs, the NCAA lost power to regulate. It's about who's in charge, laws, or guidelines. The NCAA cannot act to restrict commerce in a free market. Horizontal price fixing. I think Paul's a lawyer, uh, but yes, that is the term that would be used and was actually used in the lawsuit that was filed. So we will watch this. I know there's some of you who never want to hear about this stuff. Can't stand it. I get it. You want to talk football. I do too. But this one's really important. There's a reason we've led the show with it two nights in a row. This one could change a lot because if they go to court, if the rule gets kicked, it is pretty much time to start the new world. And I think you're seeing some of the people in charge coming to that realization. There, there are some forward-thinking athletic directors, forward-thinking conference commissioners who have been saying, we have to prepare for this. We have to do something about this. And they've, you know, the requests have kind of fallen on deaf ears because a lot of people in college sports don't want to change. They don't want it to be any different, but they're going to have to. It's going to have to change. So we will see what happens in this case. I would suspect there will be more states getting involved. We know, because the NCAA has bragged about it, that there are more schools being investigated right now. We will probably find out who those schools are coming up fairly shortly. But we're going to find out soon how this is all going to work. We can't take bets on that. but. You can go to FanDuel.com slash Staples, sign up, and get ready for the Super Bowl because FanDuel has a lot of fun ways to spice up your Super Bowl. So go to FanDuel.com slash Staples. You get 200 bucks in bonus bets if you win your first bet of $5 or more. Now, you could do something simple. You've got the point spread, obviously. Uh, the 49ers are a point and a half favorite. How about some of those specials? Uh, I haven't seen, uh, it doesn't look like FanDuel is, is getting into the truly exotic props like will Travis Kelsey propose to Taylor Swift. But how about Christian McCaffrey to score two or more rushing touchdowns at plus 430? I gave you one the other night. 
It was plus 4,000 the other night. Let's see if it's still there. Yes, 60-plus yard field goal at plus 4,000. The Chiefs kicker, Harrison Butker, has hit a 62-yarder in a game on a grass field. Just remember that. It is so much fun. So many options. FanDuel.com slash staples. If you win your first $5 or more bet, 200 bucks in bonus bets. Go to FanDuel.com slash staples and sign up. All right. As promised, let us talk some football. I know you guys wanted to talk football. I wanted to talk football. I'm in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. So I got to watch Kalen DeBoer address us today. And he's in the final throws of his first recruiting on the road period at Alabama. And all, mo- all the coaches are out and about. You saw a lot of coaches at the Senior Bowl because they're, they're stopping through. They're, looking, they're visiting recruits in the area. And so Kalen DeBoer, obviously, Mobile, a very important area for him to recruit. And so he came in. But he also came in to see some of his former players, including Michael Penix Jr., the former Washington QB, who is playing in the Senior Bowl and lighting it up at the practice. He, he's looked really good. But DeBoer was asked about where Penix is at based on you know, when he started with him at Indiana in 2019. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Uh, you know, just kind of in five minutes, uh, a snapshot of what he's gone through and what he's all worked for and, you know, realizing that dream right now. And uh, really in the best place he's ever been, you know, when it comes to, you know, two to three years now of being healthy uh, and just continue to develop and grow. Um, just all he's been through has prepared him mentally know for this type of scenario to where and you know that the pressure is the pressure but uh, he knows as the top and that he's going to be just fine he just does what he's capable of each and every so uh DeBoer deserves a ton of credit for what he did with Penix because this was a guy who was broken leaving Indiana he'd had three consecutive seasoning injuries it didn't feel like he was going to be able to to ever recapture you know you remember that the 2020 game against Penn State we reached for the pylon to win it in overtime. It didn't feel like he was going to be able to get back to that person. He not only got back to being that person, he excelled. I mean, he was one of the best quarterbacks in the country, took his team to the national title game. And DeBoer and his staff, Ryan Grubb, the offensive coordinator especially, deserve a ton of credit for that. And that's that's what they're bringing to Alabama. Now, DeBoer got a question that I imagine he gets quite a bit on the road from recruits, parents, from high school coaches, that sort of thing. Uh, but he was asked basically, you know, are you prepared for the difference in high school or in, in, in college football in the South versus the places you've coached before? Coach, you see a difference between Pac-12 football and SEC football? Any noticeable difference? Uh, I th- yeah, I mean, I think there there is. I mean, uh, you know, this uh, level of football here at the, in the SEC has been at a high high uh, you know championship level for, for a long time, and uh, I think every part of the country has their own style. Um, you know, physicality is is what wins championships, and um, you know, I think that's what our heart that's that's what a lot of what we do is going to be based on. But um, you know, I think football fo- also football, no matter where you go, and, well, uh, our stuff will also. Um, translate to wherever we've been, you know, and I've been in the Midwest and at other places in the country and, you know, just making the, the, the jaunt from the West coast uh, to the Southeast. Um, I think all the things we do will translate. Kalen Boer ain't scared. I ain't scared. Listen, 
if you can win in one place, you can win in another place. It's not, it is not that much apples to oranges. Yes, the level of competition is higher in the SEC because the players are better. The level of competition in the Big Ten is high, and he would have been in the Big Ten had he stayed at Washington. Uh, Jamie in the chat, I feel like DeBoer is viewed as, as some great hire because it's Alabama. Auburn, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, and Mississippi State make this hire, and it's not viewed the same. Well, Auburn, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, or Mississippi State couldn't have made this hire because he would not have left Washington four days after playing the national title game. Because guess what? He was already in the national title game. So why would he go to one of those places when he was at a place where he can go to the national title game? He can go to Alabama because they go to the national title game a lot. So you can probably go to the national title game more at Alabama than you could at Washington. Those other places, basically the same or lesser. So why would why would you even consider that? It's a good hire because he's a good coach. He's won everywhere he's been. All right, another question. This was this was a good one. The board got asked about what he likes in an offensive line, and I, this is one of those that, that on its surface you're like, okay, what what does that mean? Everybody likes good blockers, but stylistically, what do you want? Size wise, what do you want? Because what he had at Washington very different than what Alabama had last year. I, I think um, you know we just worked with what we had, and uh, obviously. It was a strong group of, you know, multiple, you know, both uh, our right tackle and left tackle are going to be high-end draft picks. And, uh, you know, Roger's here at the Senior Bowl and doing a great job. So um, talent, you know, um, was, was was in a great spot there. And now it's just a matter of, you know, utilizing their strengths. And uh, a lot of it revolved around, you know, what your quarterback can do. And with Michael, uh, we were able to protect him. And um, then I think as the season went along, each and every year, uh, 22 and 23, uh, we developed a run game as the year went along, and that was important for us to win a conference championship. And uh, you know, the game—you you always say you wear you wear the pads for a reason, right? It's uh, meant to, to be a physical game, and so uh, the heart and soul of what we do, we'll have to rely on that. So it, it's interesting when you compare and contrast Washington's offensive line this past year versus Alabama's. Uh, Washington, the tackles were three seventeen and three hundred pounds. At Alabama, they were three hundred fifty-four and three hundred thirty-five pounds. Washington's guards, three, 327 and 275. Alabama's starting guards, three, 335 and 316. Uh, center at Washington, 278. Center at Alabama, 301. Now, part of this is because Alabama can, can recruit elite athletes on the offensive line. So you can get bigger guys who are just as athletic as smaller guys. So part of it is they can, they can have a heavier offensive line without sacrificing too much athleticism. Now, when you have guys who are 350, 340, you probably are sacrificing some athleticism versus a 315-pound offensive tackle. They're going to be the occasional freaks of nature who are much bigger and can move just as well. But that's that's pretty rare. So what happens next with, with this offensive line will be very interesting. Do they continue to be as big as they've been at Alabama, or do they streamline it a little more? It, if you watch the end of the Pac-12 championship game, Washington versus Oregon, and that's a really athletic Oregon defensive front. I'm not, it's not a huge front. It's not necessarily as big as the bigger ones you'll see in the SEC, but it's certainly as athletic as, as some of the ones you'll see in the SEC. And they were wearing them down. It was a perfect four-minute drill. 
and you you saw the guards pulling and just crushing people on the edges and that athleticism really showed and this is the offensive line that won the Joe Moore award as the best offensive line in the country clearly that's something that works in that offense so i would not be super shocked if alabama's offensive linemen are a little bit lighter next year if you see Maybe instead of three, you know, Caden Proctor's gone. He's the 354-pound tackle, and he is one of those athletic freaks of nature. He's gone to Iowa. But I wouldn't be stunned if Alabama's tackles next year are in the 325 to 330 range rather than the 335 to 350 range. I would imagine that they do get a little more streamlined because if they're going to run the ball the way they did at Washington, some of those guys need to be able to move really well especially given the athleticism of the fronts they'll face in the sec so i can't wait to see what happens here because i think this is one of the more important strategic decisions that kaylin DeBoer and company will have to make we'll do one more from DeBoer. this is a question about austin mack who's one of the the quarterbacks that they brought from washington he was on the roster at washington last year as a freshman he came to alabama as a transfer and not coincidentally, the morning after Austin Mack announced that he was committing to Alabama as a transfer, Julian Sayan, who was the number one quarterback recruit in the class of 2024, who had signed with Alabama, he entered the transfer portal, and he wound up at Ohio State. So here is Kalen DeBoer on Austin Mack. Well, I think his skill set and all the tools he brings as a, as a quarterback, the arm talent, um, but I also just think he's got a a really great head on his shoulders. Uh, he's, he's young, um, and for him to do what he did this last year with us, he reclassified and um, really learned the offense as fast as anyone I've ever seen at that age. And so, uh, you know, he's got to just continue to continue to grow, continue to develop. And I know he's all about those challenges. He sees them as opportunities, and uh, it was exciting for him uh, as well as us to have him come down. So. I think that's a, a pretty ringing endorsement of Austin Mack. Now, Jalen Milrow will probably go into spring practice as the starter, and, and if he performs well, I would imagine he comes out of spring practice as a starter and is the starter for Alabama this season. But it definitely feels like Mack is is DeBoer's hand-picked guy kind of waiting in the wings, and I think that's, that's why Julian Sayan made the decision he did. I think he saw the writing on the wall there. But very interesting comments from the new Alabama coach. Like it's still wild to me. Kalen DeBoer replaced Nick Saban. Like that happened. And somebody took a picture at senior bowl practice on Wednesday. And it was Jed fish in his Washington gear, looking at Kalen DeBoer in his Alabama gear. And, and the, the, the caption was essentially show this to someone on January 1st of this year. And ask them what happened, and they would their head would explode. So much has changed in the last month. It's it's been two weeks, two and a half weeks. Well, no, two weeks to the day since Nick Saban retired. Four days after the national title game ended, Kalen DeBoer was taking a new job. Actually, it hadn't even been four full days. So much has changed, and. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That brings up lots of questions. So let's let's answer some of your questions. It is time for Dear Andy. One of my favorite times of the week because I do love the questions you ask. We'll start with one from MJM, which taps back into what we started talking about at the beginning of the show. So NCAA schools make the rules then get mad when they enforce rules they themselves have made. Now, it used to happen on a limited basis. The the ones who broke the rules, they would get targeted. They would say, no, 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 the rules aren't fair. And everybody would be like, no, they're pretty fair. We're good with them. That's not what's happening in this case. There's a couple reasons for that. One reason is everybody has just accepted this method of recruiting players and signing players as the way you do it now, standard procedure. Part of that was because the NCAA didn't do anything about it for the first two years of NIL. But another part of it is, in this case, the schools did not get their usual chance to really have a say in the rules. These rules have been adjusted on the fly. There's been interpretation handed down from on high. Uh, There was a telephonic vote of a 23-member committee that essentially changed how they're going to handle the discipline in these cases that they're basically going all NIL cases, the accused will be presumed guilty instead of innocent. Like how sound is your process when you have to make an end run around your usual rulemaking strategy to say that someone is presumed guilty? Like how bad do you want to nail some people? And are you not sure that you actually can? Are you not sure you could actually make a case? That's why people are mad. And again, fans of non-Tennessee want to say, oh, it's just Tennessee. It is not just Tennessee. It's more schools. Maybe yours next. And if what Tennessee did with Nico is considered punishable, then how basically every school has signed every football and basketball player in the last year is considered punishable. So everybody's on the hook, which is why you're seeing the pushback you're seeing. All right. More fun question from old Slack Joe Kane. What player in the senior bowl would would you bet your mortgage on being a pro bowler in the next few seasons? I have a few of these. I've got a few, few answers. So ran into JT Daniels at the senior bowl, former, USC, Georgia, West Virginia, and Rice quarterback, JT Daniels. He's trying to get into coaching. And I asked him about Zach Frazier, who is the center from West Virginia, who is at the Senior Bowl right now. And he said, Zach Frazier may be the perfect offensive lineman, like the perfect center, like perfect height, perfect toughness, everything you want, like everything a quarterback could want in a center. So I could definitely put my mortgage on Zach Frazier becoming a Pro Bowl center. Now, a couple other guys that after Wednesday, I was like, yeah, I I feel pretty good giving their names in this answer as well. 
I watched Tavondre Sweat, the 360-pound defensive tackle from Texas. I watched him commit a homicide on an offensive lineman in a one-on-one -on -one pass pro drill. And now, obviously, we've seen Tavondre do great things at Texas. He's looked good at senior bowl practices. But <laughs> this was a reminder of just what a supernatural force this guy is. And I will not say the name of the offensive lineman. He's He's been through enough. But, oh, my God. Watching Tavondre Sweat just maul this dude reminds you of what he can be. And remember, at that size, you don't have to play 50, 60 snaps in the NFL to be impactful. You can do it with 25 to 30 snaps a game. You give 25 to 30 great reps at that size, you can really make a huge impact on the game. So I think Tavondre Sweat is one that could be a great one. And another one who just watching him play all season, I thought he was awesome. But then seeing him against the best of the best in Mobile has, has only raised my opinion of him. And then I talked to him on Wednesday for an interview that you're going to hear in the next few days. Braden Fisk, the Western Michigan transfer who played his last season at Florida State. Defensive tackle, 300 pounds, gap shooter, great interior pass rusher. Sometimes he has passed the offensive lineman before the offensive lineman can even move. It is a joy to watch. And this guy is so much fun to talk to. You are going to love him when you hear this interview. So I think I'm going to add him to that list too, because a guy with this level of motor and that level of work ethic, I think you're going to see him make multiple pro bowls. So it's, it's been fun. I, I will say this trip to mobile has been great. You're going to hear quite a few interviews over the next few days with some of these players. We talked to some of the quarterbacks. We talked to to Joe Milton, we talked to Sam Hartman, we talked to Spencer Rattler, and we talked to some of the line. Brandon Dorless, our friend from Oregon, he he was fantastic. And it's very interesting to see these guys playing against each other because this is this is usually a pretty star-studded event, but I, I think they've really upped their game. And you heard Jim Nagy all season when he came on with us saying, I think there's some really good players. I think we're gonna have a lot of good competition in this game. He was not joking. There's some star power here, and there's there are a lot of guys who are are fighting for first and second round spots that are out there on the practice field, and it it, it has been fun to watch them work because there's a lot of dudes that work their butts off when they're on the practice field because you know you see them in the games, you don't always get to see how they work on a daily basis. I think the reason the NFL coaches love events like the Senior Bowl or the Shrine Bowl is they get to see the guys practice, they get to see them in meetings, they get to see how they act when most of the world is not watching. And I think it, it makes a big difference. And uh, one more interview I'll tease, and we haven't quite figured out how or when we're rolling these out, but they will be done over the next few days. I talked to Iowa punter Tori Taylor. Very, very fun interview. Tori Taylor is awesome. He's an Aussie punter. If you watched Iowa this year, I mean, he, he might've been their best player. Now, Cooper DeGene, probably their best player. He would vote for Cooper to Gene, but Tory Taylor was a weapon as a punter. So you're going to, you're going to enjoy hearing from him. Next question comes from Craig. Given Michigan's national title and win streak in the game. And the fact that Mike Vrabel remains unemployed, has any highly successful coach been on more of a hot seat than Ryan day? Usually going 33 and six keeps that seat fairly chilly. I don't, I get it. 
I understand the existential dread of Ohio State potentially losing a fourth time in a row to Michigan. I understand that losing to Sharon Moore instead of Jim Harbaugh this year was not what they wanted. Just made it worse. Just made everything worse. I understand that Mike Vrabel is a beloved Buckeye who is a very capable NFL head coach and that he's not getting an NFL head coaching job this year. Now, I I question whether Mike Vrabel wants to come back to the NFL or come back to college. He was briefly in college, but I don't know how much he loved recruiting. I think he could be a very good recruiter, you know, flash some Super Bowl rings. He's a, he's a football guy. Like, there is no question he'd be good in the living room. But does he want to do that? I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these coaches just don't want to deal with it. We saw Jeff Halfley leave Boston College, go to the Green Bay Packers. Now, Jeff Halfley, was he in the greatest shape at Boston College? Not necessarily, but I mean, he'd taken them to the bowl games in three or four years. He was doing a pretty good job. You're going to see this. Uh, look, I keep telling you the rules are changing. The rules are going to change. They're going to change. But until they do... Coaching in the NFL is a much easier job than coaching in college football. Like college football coaches have to recruit their roster on a daily basis. They can be held hostage by players who can transfer now unlimited times. So I get it. I get why a coach would want to leave for the NFL rather than deal with all that. But the Ryan Day thing, I still think is a little overblown because I know how Gene Smith felt. He's the outgoing AD at Ohio State. Ross Bjork is the new AD at Ohio State. I don't exactly know how Ross feels on this subject, but Gene Smith was very measured on this topic. Yeah, you got to beat Michigan. So Ryan Day does have to end that streak at some point. But as long as you're winning and putting a team on the field that can be competitive in the Big Ten, competitive for the, the college football playoff, you're doing something right. And if you look at what Ryan Day's done this offseason, they've improved their roster. I know some people don't like the Bill O'Brien hire. I actually do. I think bringing in Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator will make Ryan Day's job easier because he does not have to do as much game planning. He does not have to be involved in so many granular decisions and can deal with more big picture stuff. I also think the fact that a really old, good defense is mostly coming back intact just makes a massive difference. So, yeah, I think Ohio State should be favored to win the Big Ten going into next season. I think they should be back where they were before. And if they're not, you can ask those questions. But if they're in the college football playoff and they make it to the semifinals, like, are we really that upset about Ryan Day? My feeling is if you put your team in the mix – over and over and over again. You're doing it right. That's what I always said about Kirby Smart before they won the national title at Georgia. They, Kirby is in no danger at that point, even though he hadn't gotten over the hump because he was always putting them in the mix. And you know if you keep doing that, you get over the hump. So that's what Ryan Day's got to do. Now, you don't have to beat Michigan to do that right now. The new system creates a, a way to not have to beat Michigan. That said, you're the Ohio State coach. You have to beat Michigan. So that would be the probably the hardest part. He's He's got to beat Michigan, and he probably needs to do it this year. 
But I don't know. Even then, if they lose to Michigan, but they make the playoff and they make the semis or they make the final, you really that mad about it? I just don't know. I, I don't know if that's the case. I think cooler heads prevail in that situation. This next question comes from my friend Robbie. Robbie was my former producer on Big 12 Radio when I worked for SiriusXM. Very fun guy. Excellent. Excellent thinker when it comes to big picture sports questions. So Robbie's a Lions fan. He says he's still mourning my Detroit Lions, but it's spurred a question. What is the worst loss in the history of college football? Not as in a blowout, but a loss that crushes the soul of that fan base. So I think a lot of us are probably going to immediately go to the kick six because that is absolute defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. But here's the thing about the kick six. Alabama had won national titles in 2011 and 2012. They were trying to three-peat. So Alabama's fan base was not, did not have its soul sucked out by this because they just won three national titles in four years. They were going to win another two by 2017. So I don't think, I don't think that one was as bad. Ditto for fourth and 31. Yes, in the moment, it's awful. It is horrendous what Alabama did to Auburn this year. It is a gut punch to end all gut punches. But Auburn wasn't necessarily playing for more than pride in that game. They weren't playing for, like, in the kick six game, Auburn was playing for the SEC West title. Auburn was just playing for pride. So I don't think it, it is as crushing as it could have been. I'll give you a couple. I, I've got three that I think really fit the bill. Two of them had championship implications. One did not, but one was just, it was just one of those like, oh, come on. So let's, let's hop back in the Wayback Machine, go back to 1997. Now remember back in 1997, Nebraska still rules college football, rules you know, that they're in the Big 12 now. This is, this is the, the new conference. Uh, but they're playing former Big 8 rival Missouri. So, you know, they, they've been playing every year. And at that point, Nebraska had beaten Missouri 18 times in a row in 1997. Nebraska was the number one team in the country. Missouri was leading 38-31 in the waning moments of the game. Scott Frost throws a pass to Shevin Wiggins. Shevin Wiggins does not catch it. It's in the end zone. This is the game. This is the end of regulation. Shevin Wings does not catch the ball. But as he's falling, his feet hit the ball. You can say he kicked it, but the officials did not call this illegal kicking, and I don't, I don't think he intended to kick it. I think he was just falling, and that his feet and the ball ended up in the same place. The ball goes up in the air, where it is caught in the end zone by Matt Davison. Nebraska ties the game, sends it to overtime, wins the game in overtime. It's called the flea kicker. Missouri, which had already lost to Colorado in the fifth down game a few years earlier, and Colorado goes on to win a piece of the national title that year. Missouri just could not catch a break. This was an absolute ridiculous gut punch. Absolutely. The truth in the chat. The Clemson walk-off 
against Alabama, the, the throw to Hunter Renfro at the end of the 2016 season. That was pretty good because, although I will say, I was on the field at that point. I was on the field when Jalen Hurts ran in the touchdown that put Alabama up. And as soon as that offense took the field, Deshaun Watson, Hunter Renfro, Mike Williams, I there was no doubt in my mind that Clemson was going to win that game. So I don't know how Alabama fans felt about that, but I think they, they had seen enough from Clemson the year before to know how dangerous that offense was. And I, I think they probably might have felt the same sense of impending doom. But let's go to another one that was an absolute just brutal loss. The 2007 Backyard Brawl. So remember, you go into championship Saturday, and the Big East didn't play a championship game. So it, it's playing regular season games on the end of the on, the on the championship Saturday. The Big 12 championship, Oklahoma beats Missouri, knocks Missouri out of a potential national title game spot. So you get to the backyard brawl that night. West Virginia just has to beat Pittsburgh, and they are heavily favored. And they're in the national title game against Ohio State. And that game was just a disaster for West Virginia. They could not do anything. The offense didn't work. Uh, Pat White hurt his finger, and it, it just nothing worked. And it was a brutal, brutal loss. That's one of the worst I've ever seen because they were right there, and they should not have lost that pit. That pit team should not have been able to play with them, but it did. And of course, now we go to the one I think is the biggest gut punch because it happened in the national title game and a team that thought it was going to break in a, a very long drought was sentenced to more of the same. I speak, of course, of second and 26. The scene is Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Alabama and Georgia playing for the national title. Rodrigo Blankenship hits a field goal from Savannah, basically to put Georgia up three in the first overtime. On the first play of Alabama's possession, Tua Tungavailoa drops back and keeps dropping back and keeps scrambling. And he gets sacked for a 16-yard loss. That should have been it. Georgia, you know, if they can bat down a couple passes, Alabama tries a long field goal or tries a long fourth down pass. Alabama loses Georgia wins the first national title for the Bulldogs since 1980. Now we look back at this now and it doesn't seem so bad because we know that Georgia wins the national title in 2021 and 2022. Put yourself in the position of a Georgia fan who at that point does not know that's going to happen, but knows they have not won a national title since 1980. Oh my goodness. I was on the field for this one too. And I just remember watching the snap and seeing Devontae Smith break open and go touchdown as the ball was in the air. Like Tua caught it and knew exactly where to go. Smith was wide open. Safety didn't roll fast enough. And it was unbelievable. All of the Georgia players just dropped to the ground. 
I remember Bradley Bozeman was Alabama's center. He just walked past with tears in his eyes. Alex Leatherwood, the tackle, he'd had to come into that game to replace Jonah Williams, who'd gotten hurt in the third quarter. Alex just sat down on one of the benches and stared up at the ceiling as the confetti fell on his head. He couldn't believe. Nobody could believe what had happened. Nobody. And the poor Georgia fans, they're just like, they didn't just get up and leave. They just sat there because they knew they were going to win a national title. It's second and 26. True freshman QB that had to be inserted at halftime. There's no way that blanket chip field goal couldn't have been the game winner. And then it just gets ripped away. Hearts just got ripped straight out of the chest. So, Robbie, I don't know if that makes you feel better about the way the Lions lost, but I do think it maybe should. Because as bad as that was, second and 26 was worse for those Georgia fans. I promise you that. Next question comes from UCF Billy. What are your most anticipated Big 12 games featuring the new Pac-12 editions? Well, the first one, I don't know that I would have put on this list when Jed Fish left Arizona. But now that we know Noah Fafita's coming back, Victoria McMillan's coming back, I'm throwing Arizona at Kansas State on September 14th in there because you know, yes, Arizona's lost a bit since, since fish left, but I like Brent Brennan a lot. And I, I think, you know, they probably bring back enough that they should still be very competitive in the big 12. And you know how I feel about Avery Johnson mania at Kansas state. I'm very excited to see his first season as a starter in Manhattan. So that one early September, like, like that game a lot. Next one. The following week, Utah goes to Stillwater. So, battle of two teams that have some of the nastiest small home field advantage. Like, the fans are right on top of you at Boone Pickens Stadium. But the Utah players probably don't mind that because they're also right on top of you at Utah. It is, it's interesting because it, those environments are really intense. The must, the mighty Utah student section is is very intimidating to the visiting team. All the, the Oklahoma State fans on the first row draped over with the paddles that are slapping the, the side of the, the stadium the whole time. It's a very intimidating environment. I cannot wait to see that. So, you know, Utah leaves the friendly for them confines of Rice-Eccles, which are not too friendly to, to visitors, to go to Boone Pickens Stadium, which is as about as intense an environment as you're going to get. And then... My next one also features Utah. BYU versus Utah on November 9th. That's right. It's a conference game again. The Holy War. Church versus state. Guys, if you've not watched a BYU-Utah game, you're missing out on one of the nastiest rivalries in college football. We talk about how nasty the Egg Bowl is. We talk about how nasty the Territorial Cup between Arizona and Arizona State is. I'm not sure either one holds a candle to BYU-Utah. The Egg Bowl's close, but BYU-Utah, they hate each other. It is unbelievable. I am so happy that's a conference game again. I cannot wait to see it. But before we go, 
KC wants a requiem for the Pac-12. He says, with the extension, extinction of the Pac-12 and Pac-10 as we knew it, please list your top five favorite Pac-12 teams and or moments. I'm going to go with moments. And it's not necessarily games or anything like that. These are just the, the most fun moments of the Pac-10 and Pac-12 that I can remember. Number five, Marshawn Lynch driving the cart at Cal. Hysterical. He's in full uniform, just driving the cart around the field. It was amazing. There's a bobblehead now of this. They've reenacted it multiple times. Just a tremendous moment. Number four, Chip Kelly sends a fan a refund after the 2009 Boise State game. So that was Chip Kelly's first game as Oregon's head coach. The offense did not work very well in that game. It did not go the way they had hoped. Boise State won, and Boise State was very good at the time. But Oregon was about to embark on a pretty historic season. Oregon, Oregon would go on and win the Pac-10 that year. They would rip off a bunch of wins. But a fan complained about making the trip, and the offense stunk, and sent Chip Kelly an itemized receipt, and Chip Kelly sent the fan a check to refund the money. That's when you knew Chip Kelly was going to be something different in college football. Number three, Ed Orgeron, as interim coach, leads the USC band with Tommy Trojan's sword after beating Stanford. Listen, he brought cookies back to the training table right after Lane Kiffin got fired. You will never convince me that Ed Orgeron isn't the greatest interim coach in football history. Like, I seriously think if you've got a coach on the hot seat, you should just hire Ed Orgeron as a position coach so he's he's ready to take over when you need him. Or maybe you don't even do that. Maybe you just fire the head coach and bring Ed Orgeron in for your last four or five games. Like, name me a better interim coach. Jerome Moore, maybe? We'll see. But Ed Orgeron's done it at USC and LSU. So I just, I'm telling you, if you fire somebody and you don't feel real good about your interim choices, just hire Ed Orgeron, and he'll wind up leading the band with one of the implements that your mascot uses. Number two, what's your deal? So this was what Pete Carroll said to Jim Harbaugh after the 2009 Stanford-USC game. Stanford whipped up on USC, and a, an icy greeting at midfield. Now, what's interesting about this is Pete Carroll goes on to become the Seattle Seahawks head coach, becomes one of the coaches who has, it's, I guess it's sort of like the, the football coach version of an EGOT, you know, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. If you've got a college football national championship and a Super Bowl victory, he's one of the few who has both. Jim Harbaugh is now trying to join that club. Unfortunately, he won't get to do it by playing Pete Carroll because Pete Carroll was pushed out in Seattle. But it was that was a fascinating, and it felt like a kind of transfer of power in the Pac-10 at the time because you know Pete Carroll was on his way out. We didn't quite know that yet, but Jim Harbaugh was lifting Stanford into a place that David Shaw would keep Stanford for most of the next decade, and he did it in a, in a very emphatic way against the Trojans. Number one, of course, 
This is the easiest one of all time. Favorite moment in Pac-10 history? The band is on the field. Cal Stanford, 1982. The wildest play in the history of the sport. You got people getting run over with their instruments in hand. There will never be anything else like that. That, that, I mean, like I said, I was on the field for second and 26. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be on the field when the band, the Stanford band is pouring onto the field and Cal is still lateraling the ball. What a moment. It's a shame the conference had to go out the way it did, but I guess uh, I guess the band is on the field is now one of the greatest plays in ACC history. Oh, God, I can't even say that was straight face. That's it. Show's over, guys. That's I, I we we're done here. Play is one of the greatest plays in ACC history. Oh, boy, I can't wait for the ACC Network documentary. I also can't wait to talk to you on Thursday night. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll talk to you then. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.